Well, I, I think we all know that whenever you try to do something, nothing, nothing really goes the way you expect it to go for the whole time. I know there's a lot of times I've been I'm working on a, a project or doing a car repair where I get all the parts and I make sure I have <clears throat> all of the tools and then I get everything together, but something along the way happens and either something won't come loose and then I have to figure out how to get it loose or um, sometimes you get your kids to help you with those things and then pieces go missing and then you have to replace them. And so eventually you end up with like three trips to the parts store to make sure you get everything that you need to complete the project. And so I think we all kind of have those moments where I thought this was gonna go perfectly just like this, but it rarely happens that way. <clears throat> and so that's what we're looking at this morning actually, is Peter just spent a lot of time kind of talking to us and explaining to us how to live as good citizens in a hostile world, in a culture um, that was persecuting and against Christians. So the goal for those things was to reduce the suffering of Christians as much as he possibly could, meaning don't cause unnecessary problems for yourself. Um, Silence the objections and the things that might be against you, the complaints by living in peace with those around you. And hopefully... that will be enough. That will keep you safe. That will keep you free from persecution. But what Peter is going to say today is, if everything goes well, that's great. But just in case it doesn't, here are some things that you need to know. So that's what we're looking at this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, If you want to turn along with us there, um, you can also follow in the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, The link is in the description of the video if you're watching at home. Um, Or if you're here in person, you can just pull it up. We're going to read verses 13 through 22 this morning. And it says this, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient. And when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in it a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. And so we're going to work our way through this, um, kind of looking at if you do what you're supposed to do and everything goes well, that's great. But if you suffer, right, if it doesn't go according to plan, if everything doesn't go the way we think it is, then this is what we can do. So that's what we're working through this morning. And he starts off, right, if you suffer in this way, you are blessed. 
And this word for blessed here is the same um, word from the Beatitudes, which are in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus kind of goes through, hey, blessed are all these types of people. And this is the list that he gives them in Matthew chapter 5. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the humble, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. And then this is the one that comes after those. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Right? So blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. So Jesus says those who are persecuted are blessed, which is exactly what Peter is saying at the same time. But what does that mean? Right? Because when you're suffering, it doesn't feel like you're being blessed. It doesn't feel like it's a good thing. Right? It's something. So let's look at some of the things that remind us that we are blessed even if we are suffering. And the first one we're going to see is actually down in verse 17 where it says, it's better to suffer if it's God's will than to suffer for doing evil, right? So it's not better to suffer outside of God's will, and depending on your view of God's sovereignty, you might be saying, well, how could I ever be outside of God's will because he's always in control and he always has a plan and he always knows what's going on. I I get that. So um, you can't suffer outside of God's will maybe, but I think what he means here is when we take matters into our own hands, right? And we do what we want to do, and we just take off on our own, and we suffer the consequences. I think that's what he means when he says that. He also says it's not good to suffer for doing evil. We talked about this in the section on household servants, right? If you do what's wrong, and you get punished for it, and you suffer because of that, basically he's saying you deserved to do that because you did what was wrong. So he's saying don't suffer in those ways But if you are going to suffer, make sure it's because you're following God and His commands and trying to live those out. He also reminds us that God will be with us regardless of our circumstances, and that's better than anything else that happens to us. Most of you have probably heard the phrase, the best place to be is in the center of God's will, right? It sounds, we've maybe heard that before, but it's a, and that is true, but sometimes we think that means it's also going to be safe and easy and comfortable in that place, right? But it isn't, right? The center of God's will is not the safest place to be. It's not the easiest place to be. It's not a problem-free zone, but it is the best place to be. That means that suffering with Christ is better than having a rich life without Him. So even if I got everything I wanted on a selfish level, I got everything I wanted and everything I had was just wanted was right here and I had it all the time, right? Having everything I wanted would be worse than having nothing with Christ, with walking with Him and having Him with me and the richness that comes with having a relationship with Him and even the rewards that come with knowing Him of having someone with me and an inheritance which is of, of eternal life, which is what Peter talks about again and again and again. So if God is with us, we're better off than if He's not. But I think we also need a reminder, and a, even to myself, right, that suffering is not the opposite of blessing. Sometimes we see those on two different sides because when we suffer, sometimes we think, well, I'm doing something wrong or I'm being punished, or something's not right, and so I, we try to fix it, right, and make it right, and kind of get through it. But we saw just a minute ago that um, Jesus said those who suffer, or those who are persecuted, are blessed, right? And when he said that, he also promised them a reward in heaven. 
Here are the verses right after the one we just read where it said, blessed are the persecuted. It says this in Matthew 5, 11. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you, right? That's not our usual response when someone insults us or we're going through hard times, we don't usually go, well, I'm glad and rejoicing about what's happening to me, right? We've talked about this all the way through in Peter. It's kind of this same thing of how to respond in that moment. But the word that Jesus gives us here, it's, it's, it's not just a promise, it's a pronouncement of blessing, right? He takes our suffering, He takes our hard times, He takes when things go wrong, and He turns them into blessing. He flips them around, to be beneficial for us. So if you are in Christ as a believer, nothing can take that away from you. No amount of hard times, no amount of persecution, no amount of ridiculing for your faith can ever take away your relationship with Christ. And God is also powerful enough, and He's in control so that all things, whether they're good or bad, work to bless us by sanctifying us Right, by making us more like Him. We've seen this throughout the book of First Peter, that all of these things are to make us more like Christ, to trust in Him more. And so when we suffer, we are blessed. But then He also tells us, do not fear. Right, do not fear or be intimidated. This verse right here about do not be intimidated is actually a quote from Isaiah 8. And what is happening in Isaiah 8, God is essentially telling Isaiah, you need to be prepared because people are not going to receive the message that I'm going to give you very well. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to respond. They're not going to turn back to me. It's not going to end well. But I want you to keep doing it. I want you to keep proclaiming my words to them because what I'm giving you, what I'm asking you to do is better than anything that they could do do to you. And so we don't need to be afraid because just as God was with Isaiah, he will be with us, right? And Isaiah was able to make it through and he persevered and was sustained by God. And in the end, um, it didn't go well for Isaiah. He was actually killed for all the things that he was saying, right? But it was better for Isaiah to be with God and to do those things than it was to live and disobey God. There was a a Scottish preacher, his name is Alexander McLaren, and I came across this quote this week from the late 1800s. He says, only he who can say, the Lord is the strength of my life, can go on to say, of whom shall I be afraid? Right? Only the people who understand that Christ is our strength, that Christ brings us through, Right, that He gives us the power that we need to endure and to even rejoice in the midst of suffering. Only the people that truly understand that can say, I don't have to be afraid of anything else that comes at me, of anything else that happens to me. I do not have to be afraid because I am with Christ. And it's also interesting, again, we're going to talk about this briefly at the very beginning of the letter, but it's interesting that Peter would be the one to say, don't fear or be intimidated. Right? Because when, it, when everything was on the line, when Christ was going to the cross, it was Peter who was fearful to admit that he was with Jesus. Three times in a row, right? No, it's not me. I wasn't with him. You're thinking of somebody else. No, it wasn't me. I was somewhere else, right? 
Three times he denied Jesus going to the cross, right? Which is a response of fear, of being intimidated by what's going to happen to him. But now we see this completely come full circle and Peter saying, look, I was wrong and I made a mistake, but God restored me and Christ is with me. And so now I don't have to be afraid and you don't have to be afraid either because Christ is with us and he will get us through. So we do not need to fear. And then it tells us to regard the Lord as holy. And this word for regard means set apart. It also means sanctify. And usually when we talk about sanctification, we talk about it the other way, right? We talk about God sanctifying us, of making us more holy, right? But this flips it the other way and says we need to sanctify the Lord, which means we need to set Him apart. We need to understand His greatness and His majesty and His power. We need to confess His lordship and His deity is transcendent deity because he is in control god is ruling over everything right we see at the ends of these verses jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father with angels and powers and authorities under his control right he's greater than us he is a just judge he is the resurrected one he is the savior of the world he is the sacrificial lamb And it's as we understand those things that He is different, that He is greater, He is holier, He is mightier, He is full of grace and mercy, that we can see the world differently because He is in control. We can respond differently because a proper view of God and who He is leads us to respond differently to everything else we encounter in our lives. Right? When I understand that God is more powerful than anything on the world, in the world, I don't have to be afraid of anything in the world because what is with me is greater than that. Right? When Christ is with me, I can have peace no matter how crazy the world is around me and things are, are swirling and changing and everything is, everybody seems to be angry and upset at each other for I don't know why. Right? But we can have peace in the midst of that because Christ is with us. And so when we sanctify the Lord, when we regard or set apart the Lord as holy, that means understanding who He is and using that to influence how we live and how we react to the things that are around us. And so we need to regard the Lord as holy. And then He tells us to be ready. We see this in verse 15 and 16. Be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Your answer in the midst of these times, even when you're being persecuted, and some of these people he's talking to, they're going to be on trial for their faith. What he's saying is your answer centers on hope. It centers on hope in Christ. It doesn't center on what you know. It doesn't center on how many verses you've memorized. It doesn't center on how many times you went to church. Right? It centers on hope, the hope that we have in Christ. He shows us that our hope provides both the courage that we need in that moment, right? Of understanding that God is in control, that He is more powerful, that He knows what we're going through. And our hope is in the risen Jesus. And we don't have to be afraid because of who he is. But it also 
sanctify, when we sanctify Christ in our words, when we have this hope, He is the message that we give. He is the start of our witness, our testimony, our story. So we should have the reason we are living, the hope that we're living for, on the tip of our tongues. So whenever an opportunity arises, we can explain why we believe and why we live the way that we do. Even if we never get a question about our faith, even if we're never persecuted, right? Even if everything goes right, like Peter said at the beginning, we should still be able to weave in something about our hope in Christ into our daily lives. For some of you who have had grandchildren, right? nobody needs to ask you if you had a grandchild for you to talk about it or to show them pictures or to tell them how excited you are. And the same for having a child or something other big in your life. Right? Nobody has to ask us a question to get us to talk about it. We just automatically talk about it because it's important to us. And I think what Peter is trying to get us to say, understand is the hope that we have in Christ is greater than any of those things. So we should just naturally talk about it. People shouldn't have to ask us about it. It should just flow out of us. There was a, an example I, I heard a long, long time ago that was to, to imagine yourself as a sponge. And if somebody squeezed you, what was going to come out? Right? And if somebody squeezed you, would hope in Christ be what comes out? And kind of the first thing they talked about was, first, you have to make sure that your sponge isn't dry. Right? If somebody squeezed you, would anything come out? Would, is your relationship with Christ good enough, strong enough, healthy enough that there's extra, right? There's an overflow of, of hope, of goodness, of mercy, of grace, of God's love in you so that when you get squeezed, that's what comes out. Or does something else come out, right? Anger or frustration or disappointment. So we need to fill ourselves with the hope of Christ, should be on the tip of our tongue, ready to come out. Because Christ moved us, right, from death to life. He didn't just make us better people or nicer people. We were dead, and He made us alive. Maybe you were angry, and now you're full of peace. Maybe your life was empty, and through Christ, you're fulfilled. See how even just using two words, you can share your hope in Christ, of two words where I used to be this, but now I'm this. It takes one sentence to share the hope of Christ in that way. And so we need to be ready to answer. And we asked this question a couple of weeks ago, right? In our Wednesday night class was, can you give an answer for the hope? If somebody asks you, why do you have hope in Christ? Could you answer that? And what would your answer be? And then he also reminds us to remember that Jesus has won We see this in verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus has won over suffering, over injustice, over sin, over death, over pain. The war is over, right? He's won through his death and resurrection, and he died once for all. Right? The once-for-all sacrifice emphasizes the complete sufficiency of the death of Christ. We don't need anything else. We don't need to continue to sacrifice things like they did in the Old Testament. He's a once-for-all sacrifice. We don't need to repeat it. We don't need to earn it. We don't need to earn His favor by doing works. 
And the emphasis here is on, on the once, right? It's a one-time thing. That's all you need is a one-time sacrifice, right? No more good works are necessary. No more sacrifices to earn God's favor or love. One-time deal over and done with. It's also the righteous for the unrighteous. He was our substitute on the cross who sacrificed for us. The just one in Christ died for the unjust ones. He was perfectly righteous. Some of the things we've seen him described as no deceit, no sin. But he chose to suffer for us, for the unrighteous, for the deceitful, for the sinful. He was the unblemished and spotless lamb who was sacrificed in our place so that we could be righteous. And the reason he did that, we see, was to bring us to God, to open the door of salvation for us so that we could seek him, we could find him, we could trust in him, we could give our lives over to him, and we could be made new. And then we get to verse 19, and we're going to kind of just work through this just for a second, because I'm going to read it to you, and it's going to sound a little funny. Verse 19 says this, in which he also went and made... Excuse me. It says this, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. And so you might be asking the same question that I did this week. What is happening here? What does this mean? How does this all fit together? Why is it in the midst of this? And so just to help us understand kind of where this is coming from, Um, I found something from Martin Luther, who was essentially father of the Reformation, the reason why we're here and not at a Catholic church. This is what he said about these verses. This is as strange a text and enigmatic a saying as there is anywhere in the New Testament, so that I do not know yet, so that I do not yet know exactly what St. Peter means. So Martin Luther, who essentially dedicated his life to studying Scripture, said, I'm not quite sure what Peter's talking about here. So I'm going to tell you what I know it doesn't mean, and then I'm going to tell you what I think it means, but this is by far not the most important thing in the verses that we're seeing this morning. And so here's what it doesn't mean. Some people believe that Peter here is referring to the descent of Christ's spirit into Hades or Sheol, which is the place of death. It's essentially, um, if you're explaining it, it's the way that you go after you die before you're resurrected or before you're judged before God. So just think of people who have died hanging out in this place, which is what he refers to as prison. And so they would say that Christ's spirit went down into this place between his death and his resurrection to offer people who lived before the flood a second chance at salvation. So, like we said, the prison is referred to as Sheol or death, where you go and wait for resurrection or judgment by God. So people take that to mean Jesus went down and tried to save them who were already dead but not yet resurrected. 
Um, I just want to say very clearly that there's no support for that actually happening anywhere else in Scripture, so I'm really sure that that's not what it means because essentially all the other verses in Scripture are pretty clear that after you die, that's it. There's no other hope for you. There's no way to be saved or to get into heaven after your life is over on this earth. And so I know there are some theological people that would disagree with me on this one. And so, um, but I'm saying once you die, that's it. So it's important to understand and follow Christ in this life. And so here's what I think it means. And this is not like written in stone. If I'm completely wrong, I would openly admit it. If somebody said this is what it really means, I would say, okay. But here's what I think it means based on kind of looking at the situation and other things in Scripture. I think the spirits that he's talking about and he's going to talk to are the unsaved people in Noah's day. They heard the preaching of Christ, Christ's message of hope and salvation at some level through Noah, but they didn't obey him. And they're now suffering judgment because they didn't believe. So some pieces that got me there. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. And the, the word for preacher there is the same word for proclaim right here. And so he, we see Noah proclaiming righteousness, which is what he did when God said, hey, I'm going to judge the world, I'm going to flood everybody. Noah told everybody, hey, if you want to be saved, if you want to be rescued, you've got to get on this boat. But they didn't listen to him. Peter also told us that the Spirit of Christ was speaking through the prophets in the Old Testament. We saw this in chapter 1. And so he could have been speaking through Noah when he tried to save others and get them on the boat. The connection between all of that and what we're talking about is Noah was a persecuted minority in his day and God saved him, which is similar to what's happening with Peter Peter and other believers are a persecuted minority, and God will save them as well. And so the connection is, there's a small group of people who are trying to live for Christ, who are trying to give the message of salvation to others. And sometimes you're going to be made fun of, and sometimes it's going to be difficult, and people are not going to listen to you, but that doesn't mean that it's not true, and it doesn't mean that God isn't with you, and he will save you, just like he saved Noah and his family on the boat. He will save us from death. Right? Maybe not physical death, and we may not all die in a flood, but from spiritual death, of being separated from God. And so that's what I think it's talking about. Um, if you want to do more research on that, that's fine, but th that's not the most important thing. Um, so we're dealing with how to endure suffering, and I just I want to remind you just at the end as we kind of pull all this together, right, that Christ has already won, which is what we just saw, that he was once for all sacrificed for sins so that through him he has triumphed over sin and death and suffering. And then he reminds us that we can win also through Christ, through Jesus. If you remember back to the end of chapter 2, we saw a similar passage where, Jesus, where Peter gives us Jesus as an example of suffering. Right? He says, when he insulted, he didn't insult in return. When he was threatened, he didn't, when he was suffered, he didn't threaten them back, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So it was Christ as our example. This is how you respond in suffering. 
But in this case, he's showing us something different. If we look at the end where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, essentially in power over everything else, we see that Jesus wins, that he triumphs over suffering, over injustice, and because he has won the victory, we can have confidence as we suffer if we are in Christ, which is why I think he refers to baptism right after this, because baptism is one of the ways that we can be assured that we are through with Jesus. And like Peter says here, baptism isn't washing the dirt off of your body. It's not like taking a bath. It's more important than that. But as we believe as Baptists, it's a symbol. And so the water actually also doesn't wash the sins off away from you. That's already happened when you believe in Christ and his death and resurrection in your place for your sins and you trust in him and you give your life over to him. Right? That's, that, that's when your sins are taken away and you are made righteous. But baptism is a, like he says, it's a pledge, it's a symbol, it's a public declaration that you are with Christ, that your allegiance has shifted from self to being with God. We've given up our idols, we've given up worthless things, and we're trusting in Christ who is worth more than anything else in this world. So baptism is the evidence that we believe in the truth of the death of Jesus and his resurrection, and we are essentially putting our faith, our trust, and our hope in him above everything else. Which is why when we talk about baptism, we talk about it being a method of assurance of our salvation. So when we do it, it's not just one person who decides to get baptized and then we baptize them because they tell us they want to. No, we make sure that they understand the gospel, that they truly are a Christian, they are a believer, so that when we baptize someone, they can look back at that and say, well, my pastor or elder or deacon talked with me, and they believed that I was truly a Christian. And then we told the whole church, right, that this, we believe this person is a Christian, and as we baptize them, the church comes together to support them and to encourage them and to affirm their faith. And if they get off track, then we bring them back, right? And so it's a corporate thing that we do together in baptism to ensure and to assure ourselves that we are truly Christians, that we are truly walking in Him. So we don't have to wonder if we're in Christ. We don't have to wonder that because we've done that together. And so we can endure in suffering because Christ has walked with others in suffering. He has delivered them just as he delivered Peter and he delivered Noah and he delivered Isaiah and he will deliver us. We can be confident that one day justice will come. Things will be made right, whether it's tomorrow or in two weeks or in 200 years. God is in control and things will be made right because everything is under his authority. And we can be assured that we are with Christ who affirms our salvation. I think as as kind of the takeaway is just to remember that Christ has already won the war. We're just in this weird time where the enemy still thinks there's a chance to win. And so they're doing everything they can to cause as much damage as possible before everybody realizes the war is over. 
And one day that's going to happen when Christ returns. Everybody's going to say, oh, it's over. And it's been over for a while. I just didn't realize it. And so we're in that in-between time. But in that, God calls us to live as Christians and sometimes even to suffer persecution, even if we do everything we're supposed to do. Sometimes things go wrong. But in the midst of that, we need to remember that we are blessed, that we can have hope, and that our hope rests in Christ, who loves us and died for us and gives us new life as we trust and believe in him. And he gives us an inheritance of eternal life to be with him forever. And that hope is greater than anything that we'll ever experience or go through on earth. So we trust in him. Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for a chance to hear about how, again, how to deal with suffering, how to deal with hard times, how to understand who you are and that your, your strength, your power, your mercy, your greatness, your love, your grace as we trust in that, as we look to that, it helps us to endure. It helps us to respond differently. It helps us to have hope regardless of the circumstances. To know that even if right now we are struggling, we are hurting, maybe we've lost our job, or you're unsure what's going to happen, or you're afraid that you're going to get sick, or whatever it may be, God can be with us. And that doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect and everything's going to be easy, but that he will be with us and that we can live because we understand how great you are, how mighty you are, how powerful you are. And so that's, that's what we're going to sing now, God, of how great you are, how great is your power and your mercy and your love towards us, which gives us hope. My prayer is that our hope will flow out of us, that if we're squeezed or if we're pushed or if hard times come, that what comes out of us is your love and grace and mercy that is overflowing in us as we seek you and to follow your word. In your name I pray, amen.